This is going to be the Race Around Miranda Q&A podcast. I got a couple of great recordings out in the field there, which will be much more interesting than this. They're recordings from two of the Rwandan riders that spoke about their experience. That was super interesting, but it needs some time and some, some kind of detailed editing to really tell that story properly. So the first batch of questions I've got under the, the title of tyres, there was quite a lot of these. I've never had so many punctures in a week. I used to work in a bike shop. I thought I was good at fixing punctures, but I have not had so much practice at taking tyres on and off and fixing punctures as I have around the race around Rwanda. You kind of get up above 2,800 metres, something like that, and it turns to pine forest. You've got pine trees, it's much cooler. There's thistles and nettles and things that feel so Scottish and so British. On day, I think it was day four or day five, it was the weirdest feeling to not be waving and saying hello to everyone every two minutes. It was this 65k of like peace and quiet with just the sounds of the birds and the monkeys and the kind of creaking of the trees, the, the, the sounds of the rainforest and nothing else. It was surreal. Would I do it again and would I go back to Rwanda? Two very interesting questions, two slightly different answers. And um, listen to more stories. Stay tuned Tom? for more stories Tim? tomorrow. Stay tuned for more stories tomorrow. To hear more, as my good friend Liam Yates likes to say, stories by us. More stories tomorrow. Okay then, welcome back to the More Stories Tomorrow podcast. It's been a little while. Yeah, quite a few weeks now since uh, since we left to Rwanda. Nearly a month, over a month since since uh, race around Rwanda started, and the the time has absolutely flown. So thank you for bearing with us. And if you listen to this, hopefully this is the start of regular podcasting again, and we'll be able to keep it up throughout the year because it is a busy year and we have so much planned that I'm super excited to announce a little bit more about. So this podcast, this one's not recorded out in the field. This one is recorded back in my London flat. Um, And it's going to be talking about the race around Rwanda from my perspective. Um, And I put out on a couple of occasions, sort of before, during and after the race around Rwanda, a couple of question and answers on my Instagram and got a really positive response. Loads of really interesting questions, some things that I hadn't thought about, um, some things that kind of made me pause for thought. And I thought the best way to address all those, uh, rather than endless typing, would be through a podcast. So that's what this is going to be. This is going to be the Race Around Miranda Q&A podcast. I got a couple of great recordings out in the field there, which will be much more interesting than this. They're recordings from two of the Rwandan riders that spoke about their experience at the race around Rwanda, but also we kind of spoke quite a bit about Rwandan cycling and their journey to cycling, which I found super interesting and was a completely new perspective, something so far from what I could imagine of the cycling culture that I'm involved in and my route into cycling. So that was super interesting, but it needs some time and some, some kind of detailed editing to really tell that story properly and also working on a couple of written articles with with the Rwandan riders there so that's why in the interim you have my thoughts and ramblings uh, because this is a nice simple podcast to record by comparison 
but there is more coming from the field super interesting and not just me talking about why I was riding deep section wheels and how many punctures I had so let's start you know I'm going to start with not not a question but explaining a little bit about the race around Rwanda and what it is so the race around Rwanda albeit I'm not the expert on this is a thousand kilometer mixed surface bike packing ultra race um, lots of buzzwords in there but like all these races you start at the same time as a bunch of other people there's about 100 entered I think and then the first person across the line wins the race it's competitive it is a race um, not everyone treats it as such myself included but it is a race and the self-supported nature of it means that um, there's no outside assistance no, no, no outside assistance allowed so you're only able to use that which is commercially available to everyone on the route so if you can buy it that's fine but you're not allowed pre-arranged support teammates cars uh, booking things in advance favors from friends that sort of thing um, which makes it a really interesting type of racing and i'm sure those people listen to the podcast this isn't news to them um but i thought i'd set that out anyway so yeah i mean rwanda um i can't profess to know a huge amount about the country other than what i have learned since um it's a tiny little country nestled in east africa um surrounded by uganda kenya burundi tanzania and the democratic republic of congo they may or may not be correct i'm fairly sure they're the ones surrounding it and on the border kenya may not may or may not be on the border i may have made that up but that's in east africa and i think certainly it was in my consciousness um sort of when I think Rwanda, I either think of the current political situation in the United Kingdom and the UK's policy on asylum seekers in Rwanda, which I will not go into, and also the Rwandan genocide, which happened now 27 years ago, so as old as I am. Um, and they're, to be honest, they're the only two times that Rwanda has entered my consciousness, so I knew nothing about it other than a quick scan on the, the kind of race organisation's Instagram page. And, yeah, I mean, that's all I knew about going into it. But as a country, I don't know how to describe it and maybe going to kind of get into it a little bit more. And I think, actually, the following podcasts where um, the Rwandan riders describe their country um, and why it's so good for cycling will give you a way better description, but... It's this kind of small volcanic country that's um, not quite tropical, but like very temperate, like green leaves everywhere, um, insane landscapes, some some big volcanoes, but loads of rolling hills um, and the friendliest people. There is people everywhere. I have never been to a less remote country. And what I mean by that is I've never been to a country where there has been so little space with without people everywhere on the road. I mean everywhere to the point where it was difficult to stop and eat, go to the toilet, like you couldn't do anything without people being around, which is just so unique. I think the roads there, they're built for a reason and people live on the roads. It's not kind of like the UK where 
there's this dense network of roads that connect all sorts of little places. It's If there's a road going through there, there is a village at the side of the road and everyone lives on it. And there's far fewer motor vehicles as well. So if people are going to work, if they're going to school, if they're doing their errands, they're walking or cycling on that road. They're not kind of flying past in cars, which makes it a great place to cycle. But you're encountering people all the time, which was super unique um, and not something I expected at all. I sort of I had heard that, but I kind of thought, oh, well, within reason. Um, but literally every single stretch of the whole route, certainly in the daytime, which is when, when we rode it, was absolutely jam-packed with people. And yeah, that was something completely surreal, which, you know what, I will come back to my monologue about Rwanda and why Rwanda. But this leads me on to one of the questions that people did ask, which was, how are the people and is Rwanda safe? And yeah, I personally found Rwanda, or it, from my perspective, again, this was riding it mostly as a pair, which I will come on to, um, mostly in the daytime. I personally found it, it felt very safe and the people were exceptionally friendly. Everyone wanted to either stop and have a chat or wave or smile. It was exceptionally friendly. There was uh, mischievous children, I shall say, who, you know, you run through some villages and uh, the the kind of natural reaction of all the children was to shout Mzungu and seemed to alert every everyone within a two kilometer radius to come around and stare and run out onto the road and wave or smile um and a lot of the kids to be fair as well anyone that's done this will done the race around rwanda will will recognize a lot of the kids do shout uh, give me money as well that's like a, a default response for some of them in some areas um but not with any malice or any kind of um threatening behavior at all it, it's it's I don't know, my impression of it, which may or may not be correct, was that it's just one of those things that the young kids say because they know they're not supposed to. They seem to do it with like a bit of a cheeky smile. And um, yeah, it certainly didn't didn't phase me at all. And to my mind is a, a fairly legitimate question when you see a bunch of people who've traveled halfway around the world to ride very nice bikes through there. But yeah, the people were amazing and it was it felt exceptionally safe. And the drivers were good as well. Like I said, the, the the amount of traffic was fairly low compared to if you're riding in Europe, um, especially considering how many people there were. But whilst the driving was of a very low standard, there was never any aggression towards cyclists and, and cars would wait if there wasn't room, but would also not hesitate to drive on the wrong side of the road or without lights at night, etc. So yeah, the people were great, in short. I hadn't expected, expected to feel quite such a connection to a collective group of people despite speaking or having no common language with the, with the vast majority it was it was um really special and i can't really find the words and haven't found the the right words to explain it and i feel like i've done quite a poor job there of explaining how i feel towards the the people in rwanda as a as a collective group and the experiences i had but it was a positive one and i would recommend rwanda as a result so now we'll go back to my monologue a little bit. And that was kind of like, how did the race around Rwanda come to be? So, I mean, I saw, I think it was a, an Instagram post um, saying there was, you know, a handful of places left for race around Rwanda in November last year. And I sent off a bunch of direct messages to people who I thought might be interested in doing it. As a general rule, 
I am terrible at committing and booking to go do things. And I've got hundreds of ideas of things I want to do, but actually going out and doing them doesn't always happen, I'll be honest. Uh, I sometimes get kind of option paralysis, so I sent out a bunch of messages like, who'd be keen? And then uh, a friend called Harry replied first and said, yep, yeah, keen. And then I think within within a week or so, um, we had flights and entry. So it was very much just like this uh, different place that I had no real concept of in my head, which immediately I was like, cool, that's a reason to go. Let's get on and do it. I think, yeah, it's Africa. I think I'm certainly guilty of treating Africa as a single homogenous place of somewhere that's different and unusual. And whilst that's a little bit simplistic and not reflective of how Africa actually is, uh, that's certainly how I viewed it, at least subconsciously, going into it and, yeah, somewhere different. And then in terms of actually making it happen, it was just the right post at the right time with the right person replying to kind of tip me over the edge to actually go in. Um, And I'm very glad I did. So now we'll get stuck into some of the questions. I'm going to be a little liberal with the order and the structure on this podcast, so uh, it might be a bit chaotic for anyone listening, but I'm going to try and balance the what I think are slightly more interesting questions and the ones that I'm less sure on. I'm going to try and sprinkle those throughout, so that's more things like uh, how is the ride in the landscape, how are the people, which we, we touched on, kind of there's some really hard questions in there like what was the main thing that didn't meet your expectations or um weirdest moment things like that i'm going to try and pepper those throughout because i think they're the ones that are slightly less technical and a bit more interesting and then we've got some that i mean i'm still really interesting but in a completely different way and are much shorter answers because i've been waffling for quite some time now and, and not really got anywhere whereas some of the other ones i think will be much quicker so the first batch of questions I've got under the, the title of tyres, there was quite a lot of these, and some of them came before, some of them came during, and some of them did come after. And I think I should set the scene here by explaining. For anyone that did follow along with those Instagram stories going throughout, they will know that I had no end of punctures. I've never had so many punctures in a week. I used to work in a bike shop. I thought I was good at fixing punctures, but... I have not had so much practice at taking tyres on and off and fixing punctures as I have around the race around Rwanda. So it was really bad luck. No fault of the tyres at all in any way. Um, On day one, I was sat uh, leaning back on the saddle. I think I was taking a picture with my hands off the bars or something um, and just hit something. I don't know what it is. It was deep enough to take a huge chunk of the carbon out of the rim, but it took a huge slice out of the tyre so it cut the tyre pretty much um, in half like down the sidewall and immediately blew up and there was no way that was going tubeless again. Um, This was like three or four hours into day one so we're talking less well on you know 70k into the 1000k ride. Um, That ultimately got fixed. I didn't have the right tools for me i tried to make a tire boot out of a wrapper but it just didn't work thankfully another racer gave me a proper tire boot uh, one of the park tools stick on things um and you know to the letter of the rules of the race at that point we'd accepted outside assistance and to my mind 
I would not have finished that race without accepting that help. So from then on, it's kind of like, well, I think this is a an ethical question about ultra racing, which I will maybe say for another monologue podcast. But at that point, I was kind of like, well, you know, I wouldn't have finished without this help. So now we're here to see the country. Not that there were any ever ever any competitive ambitions to be near the head of the race, I, I should add. But anyway, we got that fixed. And to go back to the children being uh, mischievous is, is the word I will use. There was, as always, a collection of people kind of swarmed around me to watch me fix this puncture. And one of the children uh, took my pump, put it down the back of his shorts, which, I mean, I managed to spot as I was riding away, actually. I was like, there's something missing off my bike. Worked out it was the pump and, and went back. It worked out within sort of 10 seconds of leaving and couldn't find the pump anywhere. Um, there was one kid who'd been really interested in this pump. He'd been holding it and kind of looking at it. So I asked him where it was. He told me it was in my bag. It, it obviously wasn't. Um, and in the end, um, some guy came past on a motorbike saw there was some kind of, I, I, I'll hesitate to use the word conflict, but could see there was a conversation going on. And from what I understood, I assumed didn't speak a word of English, but kind of was pointing at the 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 uh, the holder for my pump and where there was no pump. Um, and this guy just got off his motorbike, I assume a complete stranger, um, kind of hit the kid on the head, kind of fist down on top of his skull, and then the pump re-emerged and the crowd dispersed. So where I was going with that point is that, yeah, the, the people there were so friendly and accommodating, but the kids were a bit mischievous. And obviously he's not going to be able to do anything with a mini pump, but it's shiny and I completely see why. And it was actually a theme at multiple other puncture stops. The kids would try and take my water bottles, which again, it's not malicious. It's just a bit annoying. So tyres. The question, this one came before, what tyres would you recommend for the event? So I went into this thinking it's sort of 50% road, 50% gravel. That's in distance. In terms of time, it's way more on gravel. Um, probably nearer 70-30 or something like that. A bit in my head, I was like, the gravel should be, it will either be really hard pack mud. Um, so like kind of fine gravel, not, not kind of too rocky or kind of loose and slippy like some of the UK gravel slash mountain biking or if it rains it turns into this like thick gloopy peanut butter mud and I was like well in that case if the mud's all sticky doesn't matter how much tread you've got the peanut butter sticks to the tyre and then you've got a big blob that you can barely ride anyway and certainly no grip on it so in my head I was going for like a slick or semi-slick um, something really fast rolling but with decent punch protection like any bikepacking tyre so I settled on a Schwalbe G1 which I'd used for a Germany trip last year and it'd been absolutely perfect and, and, and that was in a 40c width um, and to be honest that was probably about perfect we only had a bit of peanut butter mud and my theory to my mind by and large held um, in that once a really fast rolling tyre there was no point where I felt like I needed the kind of tread or grip that I might do for some gravel races like not cornering hard or anything like that um, and like I say the puncture stuff was just really bad luck so we had that cut on day one and then there was a tube in the back straight away um, and then the roads were covered in like bits of wire or bits of glass um, and they just kept popping the tube in a way that a tubeless tyre would just deal with it um, but they kept popping the tube and then we only had two spare tubes 
and at that point started putting puncture repair patches on which with a tyre full of sealant still because it was set up tubeless it gets all like goopy and horrible so the tyre the tie patches kept slipping off and in the end I ended up having I think it was 11 punctures and did end up taking a couple of tubes later on from some of the other riders kind of adding to that uh, theme whereby I definitely wouldn't have finished and didn't have enough spares to deal with the what happened on first day um, so I've also ticked off the question there what tyres did I use and also what happened to your tyres and why so many punctures and how many punctures so I think we've completed tyres there no doubt as we're talking more will come back as more uh, puncture incidents uh, I'm reminded of more of them so now we've we've covered off tyres so I think I will add in another question from the big list which is how much training did I do that's a good question um, the short answer is none I, I don't do any structured training but as a general rule I do ride quite a lot uh, I'm very lucky to have the time and energy to do quite a lot of riding around my job um, I probably do seven to ten hours a week um, and get to go on lots of trips during the summer so no training but generally well conditioned but yeah I mean I think I've touched on this a couple of times it was never a competitive event it was very much about can I do a thousand K in the, the time cut off of six or seven days which whilst it was very very hilly and parts of it were pretty rough and pretty slow and certainly could have been if we'd had that rain and that peanut butter mud you know I was never pushing the 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 boundaries of the front of the race where you really do need to be training or have some serious talent so short answer is no training but uh, yeah lots of riding I'm not going to pretend I don't do I don't touch my bike okay next one the next category I've got is bike equipment so setup tips how do you carry things uh, you know what let's go through these one by one so setup tips um, some of these questions came from bits and bobs I put on my Instagram stories before going so for me I'm going to struggle to remember all of these but I try and hide things that I hopefully won't need in places where they're out of the way what I hate in my backpacking bags is loads of little bits I like to have very few bits and what I need where I need it immediately and everything else just out of the way so I had some so I had aero bars on on some little little um, risers to raise them up so Raising, sorry, I'm going to way too much technical detail for a podcast there. It's, this is not the format for talking about the rise on my aero bars. But some gear cables shoved down the aero extension. So kind of wrapped up. It does put little kinks in the gear cable, so it wouldn't be perfect. But if you snapped a gear cable, you're not having a perfect ride. Um, and it would be fine to get it through. Um, so that was a spare gear cable for my mechanical Shimano gears inside i also put spare spokes in my aero bars because again if you need those you're having a really bad ride but they weigh i think a couple well certainly under 10 grams each um so just put one spoke for every spoke length i've got on the wheels which is there's one spoke length at the front one on the rear drive side and one on the rear non-drive side so there's three spare spokes tucked in there and a load of zip ties are in the um aero bars as well because again if you need zip ties you're not having a good day out um, but when you do need them they're an absolute lifesaver and if they're just floating around in your tool bag there'll be no end of annoyance whereas when they're tucked away in 
in a kind of mountain bike bar end or in an aero bar, it's fine. Same with chain links. I electrical tape those to my handlebars or my uh, brake cables. Uh, how did I carry things? So I had everything in a tail fin, which uh, if you've not heard of that, have a Google of it. It's like a carbon fiber pannier rack type thing that goes in the rear and is kind of the alternative to the standard strap-on bike bags. Um, the main benefit being those standard strap-on bags sway around quite a lot unless they're packed perfectly, which means if you need something at the bottom of that bag, you have to take everything out and then pack it all really carefully and it can just be a general nightmare. Whereas tail fin, the, the way it's designed, you can just take stuff in and out really, really quickly. So I had a big camera lens in the back and then all my nighttime stuff in there. So that worked really well. I could just unroll it, get my big camera lens out, take the shot, get it back in, wrap it back up and leave. So that worked great. Um, and then I had a top tube bag and a small handlebar bag from Angry Pablo. So in combination, because we, I didn't take camping stuff, we didn't take camping stuff. That was more than enough for the race, um, just, the, just those couple of bags. Why deep section wheels? So that is a good question. I took a set of 56 mil uh, carbon aero wheels. And as I mentioned before, managed to absolutely rinse the back one on a rock somewhere and take a huge gouge out of it. But for me, why not carbon? Why not deep section carbon wheels? I think for me, the days of kind of deep carbon wheels being stiff and uncomfortable and shallow alloy rims being flexible and comfortable feels a little bit out of date now I'm using big 40 mil tires which are very comfortable carbon wheels they're all very much the same they're all very strong a, a gravel wheel for that kind of riding where you know I'm not jumping off anything isn't significantly stronger the carbon wheels I use the prime primavera ones have a super wide internal rim width which is quite technical but means that it supports those big gravel tires really well in a way that some older road wheels perhaps wouldn't have done. But it means that essentially there's no disadvantage to using it. They're super light, super strong, and they work with gravel tires really well. And if there's any small air advantage, like, great. Um, but to be honest, I just think they look cool. That's the, that's the main reason. I like the hubs that are in them. So why not deep, deep section wheels, but absolutely don't need them. And gearing. That is a good question, actually. What gearing? So I have my smallest gear was a 32th ring at the front and then a 32 at the back. So slightly over a one-to-one -one gear ratio. And if you don't know what that means, it doesn't really matter. But it means uh, it's a relatively easy gear, but actually for the terrain there, so going into it, I thought there was, I think we were, the route manual said, you know, there's no really steep climbs, but there, there was quite a lot at, uh, significantly above 10%, sort of 10 to 15% um, for very long periods. So to be honest, I was probably slightly tall on my gearing. So the gears were a little bit hard. And actually Harry, my partner, had much easier gears and was far more comfortable on the climbs. So it meant that I was kind of out of breath and pushing a bit harder on the climbs just to keep my legs turning over because I like quite a high cadence anyway. So maybe I'll go for slightly lower gears, especially with that, that kind of loaded setup. And also because the roads are relatively smooth, so you could ride up most things. For the UK, I find that gearing perfect. If I can't use that in the UK on a day ride with no panniers, then I'm walking anyway. 
but you just can't kind of do those like power climbs in the same way on these bikepacking races. So I would go for lower gears next time. Okay, that's bike equipment. They're the questions on bike equipment done. What was the main thing that didn't meet my expectations? I don't know how to answer that one. Like I think I touched on at the bottom, I had I had very few expectations going into it. Um, I didn't really know what to expect other than it was somewhere different that I wasn't really aware of as a country and that's that's exactly why I went. So I tend not to go into these things with kind of strong expectations or a really clear idea of what I want to get out of it because for me that's half the, the exploration is the fun part of it so I think if I'd been going into it as a race and treating it like a, a competitive event maybe I would have had you know very clear ideas about the race but it was about exploring the country I don't think I had any expectations but and again I think I, I did touch on this at the start the thing that I was surprised by and I guess hadn't been expecting, just was the people and the density of people and the frequency with which you interacted with them because everyone came out to wave or shout or kind of make some kind of contact with you as you were riding along the road and being towards the back of the, the race. They'd obviously had the experience of sort of 50, 60, 70 cyclists coming through before. And some of the, the kids and the teenagers would run for miles sometimes they run for you know two three four five kilometers next to you and yeah clearly just drop whatever they were doing for the day and run off and similarly you know you'd see these uh there were clearly like groups at, at school and then the whole school would just run out of the playground and start running after you and i hadn't really expected that at all i'd perhaps somewhat naively been expecting it to be a little bit more like North Africa whereby you see lots of people and they're about but the interaction is much lower or, or in Europe as well I mean that's that's just, that's the case there so that was probably the main thing that didn't meet my expectations but like I say with the caveat that I didn't have huge expectations going into it or any idea of what I wanted to get out of it okay back to some of the other questions so clothing what kit did I take what did I use? So I took quite a lot. I certainly flew out to Rwanda with quite a lot. The temperature and the climate there is uh, fairly similar all year round. They have a wet and a dry season. I think we're on a transition. I don't know if it was from dry to wet or from wet to dry. Um, but basically there was, a, there was a decent chance of rain. And quite a lot of other riders did get caught in some rainstorms. We were very lucky to not... We got a bit of rain um, on one of the days, but but nothing nothing to worry about and also the country is worth saying is at altitude so the capital I think it was 1200 or 1500 meters so kind of takes the edge off those kind of really hot temperatures you get around the equator and then the highest points were up to 3000 just over 3000 meters but and a lot of it was at sort of 2000 ish so at night could potentially be quite cold um, especially if the weather was slightly colder overall um, so with that in mind I kind of my strategy with these kind of things even though we weren't racing it you kind of want to go as light as possible was what do I need in kind of a to keep riding through most temperatures which was summer jersey arm warmers leg warmers some extra bits so like uh, an insulated uh, the Albion burner an insulated kind of 
chest square, I don't know how to describe it. If you Google the Albion burner, you will have a very clear idea of what it is, but it's basically like an insulated thing that just goes on your chest, kind of like the newspapers that you'd put, you'd see Tour de France riders in the 60s put down there, down the top. It's uh, um, but a small synthetic version. A very lightweight pair of gloves, uh, a rain jacket, and a thin insulated jacket. And to my mind, going out there, I was like, if I'm wearing all this stuff and I'm still riding, it is way too cold to be out riding. You know, we're talking five degrees or so by the time you've got a neck warmer and all the rest of it on um, and you're waterproof. And then I had an emergency blanket as well. So if it was cold and I was stationary, in those kind of situations for me, it's about what can I survive through rather than what will be comfortable to keep me riding. So that's what I took. I didn't take a puffy jacket. And in the end, actually the weather, we were lucky with the weather. It was generally pretty temperate, pretty mild. The coldest morning, sort of 4am starts at slightly higher elevation. I think it was 12 degrees, something like that. So really super manageable. And in the end I wore my arm warmers once and the rest was just shorts and jersey the whole time. So very low kit demand. Um, if I was taking it, if I was going again, I would probably maybe double check the forecast, but I could have definitely taken some bits out. But I think the other reflection would be, I was expecting it to be way more remote. So I was expecting to have to, you know, potentially be out there for quite a few hours before if the weather turned, you, you could find some shelter. But actually having done it, if you were in a genuine situation where the weather really turned and you really needed, you know, you were hugely underdressed and in a genuinely dangerous situation, there were very few points on the course where there wouldn't have been outside assistance or people to help you. So if you were racing, you could get away with a smaller kit. Albeit, I think, I'm sure racers from other editions would have different thoughts. We're very lucky with the weather. So yeah, that's what I took. What I used was a small fraction of that. And actually, the other question I got asked, which I'll answer is, uh, I took two pairs of bib shorts, I took two pairs of everything, just because for that kind of race, where we were riding daylight, not trying to be at the front of the pack, didn't want to be too dirty and too smelly, unnecessarily. So we weren't camping, we were staying stuff every night, so I'd literally, I'd wash one set of kit as soon as I got in. Um, then get that hung up to dry, rolled up in a towel, squeezed out, hang up to dry. It would still be a bit damp in the morning, but that's fine because I just pack it away again. I wear my other clean set of kit, so kit set number two, ride with my damp set all day, get that up to dry straight away again as soon as we got to the hotel the next night, wash my now dirty kit, which is the, the now the wettest. The stuff that's slightly damp fully dries overnight, so it's good to wear the next day. And I've got another set of damp kit and you just kind of rinse and repeat, washing every night and constantly turning over. So always in clean kit, um, just with two sets of everything. So that's the extra kit I took. Okay, that's clothing done. So, and of the other section, we've got, we've done the people, we've done why Rwanda and what is the race around Rwanda. We've done expectations, um, we've done training how was the riding slash landscape? I think this could do the whole podcast itself. And again, I think this is one of those questions that is just best told by Moses and Violetta, the random riders. They 
have a way of explaining the riding that I think just wouldn't do it justice for me. I think I'm very much a visual storyteller. I think my photos are the, the I don't have the words to describe how the riding and the landscapes were. And for me, my natural tendency is just be like, look at the photos, look at the photos that are on the more stories, Instagram just at the moment. Um, but, but we'll be going elsewhere. And for me, that is everything I want to kind of uh, put across about it. But the landscape is this, yeah, this temperate, volcanic, hilly landscape that, and the, the, the variation, which again, hopefully comes across in the series of photos, is huge. You've got, on day one, we had this savanna, I don't it wasn't, almost savannery, deserty type environment, really dry, arid, dusty with small shrubs. Then you've got the really rich volcanic sections further around um, on the way to checkpoint two. Then you've got the high altitude and the, so the, the, the high altitude, you kind of get up above 2,800 meters, something like that. And it turns to pine forest. You've got pine trees, it's much cooler. There's thistles and nettles and things that feel so Scottish and so British. And the landscape changes again. And this high pasture land, you then go around the back of the course and you end up with a rainforest at one point in Youngway. Um, so the, the huge variation for what is a relatively small route at a thousand kilometers. You kind of get what feels like a bit of everything. And I think credit to the route organizers there. They took us through some amazing places, the tea plantations, the rainforest, the alpine pastures, the dry, arid savannah. It was an insane variation. But yeah, for me, the, the, the best way that I can try and communicate that is by saying, look at the photos. That's, that's kind of what I want to say about how is the riding and landscape. The riding itself, again, varied, interesting, really hilly. Um, so food and water, that is our final topic of like uh, technical questions. And I'll go back to two more on the, the wider ones and then we're done. So food and water, how much, this is one that came before actually, how much water capacity um, and then one that came after, what did you think about that and was it enough? So I think we got it about right there. Um, I took just under two litres in bottles um, and this was at the race organisers advice I didn't quite clock it at the time but again that point of it's very unremote um, there's populations everywhere meant that water wasn't a huge issue um, so I had two litres two bottles in two hundred two six hundred and fifty mil bottles inside the frame and then another 650 on the bottom if I'd been planning to push through the night, that might have been a, I might have made a slightly different call, just because whilst there's loads of shops everywhere, uh, there's no shops at night. So and the because it's equatorial, it's kind of six a.m. to six p.m. every single day throughout the year. So there's long nights. Basically, you've got twelve-hour nights, and so yeah, maybe I would have taken more water if I was planning to ride through the night, but but it didn't at, at, at any point really. Um, not more than a couple of hours anyway. So the water capacity was about right. There was a couple of sections that were a bit more sparse up on those high alpine pastures where you'd have had to look around for your water a little bit more. But I mean, I had the tail fin for that. So there was a couple of sections where I bought an extra litre in a kind of uh, plastic water bottle. 
and then I just pop that in the tail fin and then that's my backup. So I get through my bottles and I try and keep them topped up, but if necessary, I get my bottled water out and, and put that in. So I think it worked pretty well. And the shops there, there aren't what I would call or what anyone would recognise as shops outside of a couple of big towns. Certainly saw, I think we saw two supermarkets in the whole thousand kilometres. Um, but you're going through these villages and they're just like, uh, um, I don't know what the, what the right word is, but kind of straw and mud bricks made into these kind of, mud hut is doing them a disservice. Um, some of them were, but the majority of them were, had like a rendering on the outside. And anyway, these small houses without windows and the door would be open and there'd sometimes be a couple of people sat outside um, and sometimes you'd just literally peek a counter behind the door and someone sat there. Um, but all the villagers had shops of some form um, that you could stop and, stop and get water in. So, um, which leads on to my next question, which is what type of food? Um, and there was lots of different questions on this, but since we're there, what was the food on the road like? I think if I'd been racing, so kind of pushing that upper zone two and lower zone three where you're burning a lot more carbohydrate, it might have been tricky. There was very little processed and sweet food. I think the closest thing we got to that was like uh, basically rich tea biscuits. They seem to be available everywhere, but hideously dry. And that was pretty much the only thing that we'd recognize as kind of high calorie dense food. The rest of it was things like bananas, chapatis, Mdazi, which I don't really know how to describe it, but fried sweet thing and various bits and bobs like that. And then there were, the, the other thing there was, there was sugary drinks. So you get Fanta and Coca-Cola most places. But yeah, that made, that made the refueling, there was loads of food as long as you weren't picky about what it was. Um, most towns had buffets in with like boiled eggs and rice, beans, curries as well. And then actually, because we were stopping every night, kind of had a hot cooked meal, albeit the service in Rwanda wasn't always the fastest. You can sometimes be waiting over a couple of hours for your food, which again, fine for our pace, but if I was racing, I think the nutrition and the food strategy would be quite difficult just because you don't really know how long, you know, food's cooked from fresh rather than, or sorry, from scratch, but rather than a professional kitchen where they might be in in Europe where there might be some kind of prep so that food comes out faster in Rwanda when you order I don't know some kind of pasta dish they start cooking it there and then so it could take a couple of hours sometimes if I was racing that would have been a bit more stressful and also the lack of processed high calorie foods might have been difficult for me but for me it worked fine I started out with a huge I started out with half a kilo of Haribo actually which was gone by day three, but by then I sort of adjusted a bit and kind of survived off these rich tea biscuits and bits and bobs like that and a few savoury savory crackers. Because in, um, in the capital city, they had kind of uh, like French supermarkets that had imported French food where you could buy that high calorie, um, high calorie and processed food. Oh, okay finish off this section the best thing I ate that is a tricky question isn't it I'm not sure I answered the best thing I ate I hope there was a couple of chapatis or like flatbread type things on day one that were really good like they taste like they had butter in maybe they did have butter in but they tasted great I think they were still warm I can't think what was the best thing I ate I'm not gonna lie it wasn't a culinary 
trip where I was blown away by the level of the food. Nothing, I'm going to answer that with, nothing sticks in my mind as the best thing I ate. I think that chapati on day one is the only thing that sticks in my mind just because I was so hungry and hadn't been able to get breakfast down for the 4am start. And then there's this warm flatbread that tastes really buttery. And that is the thing that sticks, which is probably not the best answer, but that's going to have that's the, that's the piece of food that sticks in my mind the rest was there was no really bad food or really unenjoyable food but that's the thing that sticks in my mind and the final thing did i get sick uh, no i didn't i didn't get sick at all obviously water was quite careful as in only drank bottled water there um i did have some chlorine purification tablets with me just in case it was needed if there was if there was a really again i was expecting it to be far more remote and to be far less availability of of um, kind of bottled water, so I took some chlorine tablets just in case, but but didn't need them. Food prep, I have no idea what it was like behind the scenes, but I managed not to get sick. And to be honest, as a, I mean, there were people that got sick, but nowhere near as many as I've seen in other races, like the Silk Road Mountain Race, or to be honest, even in in Morocco at the Atlas Mountain Race. There wasn't kind of huge swathes of the, the, the race dropping out due to stomach issues, which, so I guess maybe that means, I, I couldn't comment on the, the uh, risk of food poisoning in Rwanda, but it, it didn't seem too bad and I didn't get sick personally. It wasn't an issue at all. So the final questions. What was the weirdest moment? That's a tricky one as well. What was the weirdest moment? I think the weirdest moment was, so the Nyungwe forest is, it's this rainforest that has a big, smooth tarmac road through it, but acts as a sort of de facto border with Burundi. It's not where the actual border is, but the, the jungle is so dense that this is kind of the, the patrollable border between Burundi and Rwanda. And where I'm going with that is there's soldiers all along it. All very friendly and waving and kind of interesting interested to, to see what we're doing and see if we're okay um, but they're every uh, I mean there were some sections where there may be a kilometer with no soldiers but then they'd be sort of every 200 meters by and large anyway we kind of set off into Nyungwe at three four four in the morning something like that and it's kind of pedaling through just as the summer's coming up it's probably half past five something like that and I stopped for a toilet. It was actually, so the, the Nyungwe Forest, which is about 65K long, the road through it, was one of the only sections without people. It wasn't populated at all. So you had these soldiers along the route, but there was no towns and houses. And on day, I think it was day four or day five, it was the weirdest feeling to not be waving and saying hello to everyone every two minutes. It was this 65K of like peace and quiet with just the sounds of the birds and the monkeys and the kind of creaking of the trees, the, the, the sounds of the rainforest and nothing else. It was surreal. Anyway, stopped at five in the morning for a wee and then I think I was like flicking through my phone to, I don't know, pick a new song or whatever. And then just out of nowhere, I, I'm not kidding, maybe less than a meter away from where I've just been standing having a wee, someone pops out of the bushes and says, hello, like, how are you doing? Um, are you okay? Uh, and it was this soldier with an enormous machine gun and he'd literally been sort of meter away from me. I hadn't seen him at all. Completely camouflaged. And it was it was like dawn at this point. It wasn't pitch black. 
and I just hadn't seen him at all. And then after that, I started seeing them more and more. But he just pop, literally seemed to pop out of nowhere behind a tree. Um, and I had no idea he was so close. Um, or somehow managed to move silently, one of the two. Um, but that was probably the weirdest moment that completely took me by surprise. Um, the other one, actually, which I mentioned just before, was going up to that high, high alpine section and seeing thistles and nettles. I just couldn't believe it. So when we kind of entered into that changing landscape, we, we climbed out of the tea plantations and kept going up into this like Teletubby land of rolling grass hills. I was kind of joking at the time that it looked just like Scotland and as I believe everywhere, when you go far enough and go into enough mountains, everywhere looks like Scotland. But I saw thistles and nettles and for me, that might be a, to those listening at home and maybe actually saying it back, it, it doesn't seem that weird now I'm saying it. But at the time, maybe it was my state of tiredness and delirium I just couldn't believe I was seeing these, like, for me, what are, like, quintessentially British plants on the other side of the world at 3,000 metres in Rwanda. So they were probably my two weirdest moments, and I'm sure they're not the weirdest, because now saying them back, both of them seem fairly vanilla. So maybe I'll have to update and drop in a little, drop in a little extra voice note if I think of another weirdest moment. But that's what I'm going with for now. They're my weirdest moments. But yeah, maybe it comes back to that thing. I wasn't going with any expectations. So there was no there was no weirdness. Miranda is its own country. It's very special. Uh, the final one, and this is a perfect one to wrap up on. I can also see coming up to nearly an hour, so it's probably time to wrap it up anyway. Would I do it again? And would I go back to Rwanda? Two very interesting questions. Two slightly different answers. So would I do the race around Rwanda again? Uh, in principle, yes. It was a great race. I really enjoyed it. In practice, I suspect not. There's so many other places to go and so many other things that catch my attention and so many other new experiences to have. I don't think I would do the race around Rwanda again. Maybe some competitive flame will be ignited within me and I will feel compelled to go back to to race around Rwanda to do it. As a race, it's really well set up as a course for racing on uh you know very safe good levels of traffic good levels of resupply not very remote that all appeals to me and now i've seen the country in daylight i actually wouldn't mind riding through the night and kind of missing some of those landscapes now i've done it but you know with a a limited amount of time money resource I don't think I would go back and do the race around Rwanda. And that's no reflection on Rwanda or the race organisation. There's just so much more to see. But, yeah, maybe I'll change my mind on that. On would I go back to Rwanda, definitely. I think the same before applies. There's so much of the world to see and so what feels like so little time to do it. But as a country, it has captured my interest and my imagination. And maybe that would be go to go back and do some of the other races that the Race Around Rwanda team organise. There's their Rwanda Epic, which is their kind of um, mountain bike mountain bike stage race. That really interests me. But also just bikepacking and I guess probably not doing a dissimilar route to the Race Around Rwanda, but just in my own time. I think what it has also triggered some additional thoughts on is going to see more of East Africa. So those neighbouring countries, Tanzania, Uganda, 
um, Burundi and if Kenya is on the border it may or may not be in fact I'm going to google right now Kenya is not on the border of Rwanda it's Tanzania, Uganda, Burundi the Democratic Republic of Congo um, but anyway that, that area of the world I would love to go and see more and I think that is probably more likely than going back to Rwanda specifically just because the race route is amazing you you do essentially a full lap of the country and I'm not going to, to have pretended to see everything Rwanda has to offer but it's a relatively small country you start in the capital you see the east and the national park you go up to the north and the volcanoes, the Twin Lakes, so Ruhengeri. You go down to Lake Kivu, um, one of the Great Lakes. You go through the rainforest. You see a huge amount of the country. And I feel like there's so much more in the region, which is just unseen and is to be seen. So that's my answer. The answer is I don't think I'd race it again. and I might not go back to Rwanda, but for what I hope are all the right reasons, not because of any negative experience, which, which isn't the case universally everywhere I've visited so that's my answer but I would recommend anyone else who has the means or the desire to to go and visit Rwanda it was I recognize it's a huge huge privilege to get to go and do something like that but like I say anyone who has the means or desire to it was incredible and I would absolutely recommend it in the race or, or just touring I think that the race provides a nice safety net there's other people doing similar things on the route to you but I wouldn't hesitate to go there and just go bikepacking or bike touring there's, there's so much to see and hopefully you'll hear more on that uh, when the podcast from Moses and Violetta come out they both have really well articulated and quite detailed views on all the reasons you should go visit and run and cycling so I guess the final thing to say is the UCI World Champs is going to be in Rwanda in 2024, if I remember rightly. Um, let's have a little Google. Insert typing noises. 2025 is going to Rwanda. You know what? I would happily go visit Rwanda for the for the UCI Road World Champs in 2025. And if you're looking for an excuse and race around Rwanda doesn't sound like it's for you, the world champs in 2025 would be a great excuse to go to Rwanda. It's going to be an amazing race, no doubt. And I have no doubt Rwanda will be a great host country for it. Thank you very much for listening. I know it's been a few weeks since we've had a podcast. And I do have a look at the analytics and see how many people are watching every week. Or listening every week, rather. And I really appreciate every single one of those. I know how much of a time investment listening to a podcast is. Even if it's just on in the background. It's hugely appreciated, and I'm really excited to be doing more this year. This is, might be a different, slightly different style. It's sat down, it's not out there in the world, and not quite as interesting as when we get some of the guests on who have some new stories and new perspectives to share. But thank you for listening, and I'll see you again soon.